I'm going to take a bit of a, uh, uh, a controversial position here. I am sick and tired, and I think it's stupid for the defense attorneys to continue to tell me why this is an irrelevant metric. Because, and it's always the same excuse. Well, I have you know the crazy plaintiff's attorney asking for a million bucks on every single demand, so it's really a five thousand dollar claim. So that's a distorted metric. No, no, it's not actually. That's just data. You're telling me you don't like the data because if I measured the data wrong, I would come up with a misleading statistic. Number one, um, don't tell me how to do my job. And number two, I have access to data scientists. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by my partner and co-host, Nate Bolander. Hi, Nate. Good morning, Megan. How are you? It's been a minute since you've joined me on a podcast, I think. I've been I've been with child. Yeah. So it's been yeah. a minute since I've done most things. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, are you going to be able to stay awake for this hour? Oh, yeah. I got coffee and um, <laughs> uh, and I'll get through. It's, it's a series of getting through things for the last month. So I will get through this hour. Absolutely. Well, as is life now with kids. So yeah, buckle yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better, like, by, it's better by two months, right? I'm set by two months. And then you can well, I mean, post. this stage is over and then you get like, mm. it, it, once you get through one thing, the next, like once you get comfortable and figure it mm-hmm. out, then there's a new challenge and then you have to figure that out. So beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. What, and Can't wait. Not to derail from our intro of this podcast, but one thing that was really helpful is um, Wonder Leaps. If you haven't looked at Wonder Leaps, it's like this idea that kids are or babies are overly finicky and they have issues coming up when something is developing in their brain. And they, mm. and once you understand that a leap is coming, you can anticipate it and be able to mm-hmm. like address their needs more. Well, if being finicky is brain development, then we have a Mensa candidate in the next room. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. I heard that, too. The less they sleep, the smarter they are. Well, she had, likes nothing more than the ceiling fan. She watches the ceiling fan for between eight and 10 hours a day. So maybe she'll be an, en- maybe she'll be an engineer or an interior decorator. Well, I, I had one of those too. So I, I feel your pain. Beautiful. And I'd love to tell you it gets better, but melatonin will be your friend. Okay. Back on track. Not to sidetrack, but so, you know, today we have on Matthew Queen, who we've had on before to talk about captive insurances captive insurance. And today, Matthew is going to talk about, you know, what he looks for in outside counsel and, you know, really the factors he considers when he hires counsel. And it's not exactly what, you know, I think attorneys think he's not really looking for personality, it, not to give it away, but Matthew likes data. Um, so, you know, he's coming on to talk about that and, you know, get into real specifics of like how counsel can stand out from the pack and how you can get hired by someone like Matthew. So with that, let's bring him in. Hi, Matthew. Welcome again on the Defense Never Rest. So happy to have you. How are you? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So before we jump in, just in case anyone missed the last podcast we had with you that you talked about captive insurance, can you just tell um, or explain to our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, I am the, the CEO of a small captive insurance company. We provide general professional liability to a, a handful of, um, healthcare entities across the USA. We are um, actively writing premium paying claims. Uh, the only difference between us and an admitted carrier is that at the end of the day, my renewal rate is 100% because we are a self-insurance solution for an existing uh, commercial entity. So uh, what that really does is it means that I don't have to worry as much about underwriting 
as the average bear. I'm more focused on claims and vendor management is one of the best ways to manage the allocated loss adjustment expense. And I'd love to be able to share with you a couple of thoughts I have about uh, selling services into an insurance company like mine uh, and the ways that I like to manage ALA, ULA, and indemnity. Okay. Well, first though, I, you know, we, I wanted to talk about panel counsel because you, you know, you choose who your counsel are um, and what you look for. So with that, like, you know, if you could, in your, in your view, if someone wants to stand out to, to you and get Matthew Queen's attention and get work, um, that's what we all want. All us defense attorneys, we want work from insurance companies. You know, what are, what is it that you're looking for and how does someone stand out to you? So I'm in a very fortunate position where all we do is like one small area of professional liability. So I'm looking for people who are 75 or 80% in the long-term care space. I will, I will accept, you know, if you do assisted living in addition to skilled nursing, that's fine. But, you know, if you're dabbling in construction defect and then you're handling a little bit of med mal on the side, that's not what I'm interested in. And that mentality is generally shared by most of my peers in claims. When you come out there, I think it's smart to just look at it in terms of the insurance policies. If you want to be an insurance defense attorney, find a policy that you really like and go after it. So uh, if you want to be the slip and fall guy, sounds to me like you're a GL policy kind of person. If you want to be the med mal guy, you probably want to drill down from there. Texas, for example, has med mal statute that covers both long-term care and doctors. So that's that's so broad that I have to do a little bit of investigation with the, per, with the, with the defense attorney to make sure that they are well-suited for what I want to do. The advantage to the defense attorney by being in a niche, not, I don't want to use the word specialist because you know, you're always going to have the all bell claims. You're going to have a rando divorce that comes across your way. You're going to have the rando, you know, your uh, just case that doesn't really fit your mix. I'm not saying you shouldn't accept those claims, but when you market yourself, you need to be a, a person. And if you're in that space and you develop connections in that space, that's how you develop the uh, confidence in your client to be able to do more or less whatever you want to do. I should not be second guessing you guys. I should be telling you the vision of how I'd like to handle claims. And then your tactics should be so far ahead of mine because you're the specialist that I'm basically just checking the box and saying, mm-hmm, sounds good to me. <laughs> right. You don't want to be in a position that you're, you have to double check of what your attorney's doing because then what, what are you paying them for? Uh, I mean, that's, I, I would, I mean, that's, I've, I've never switched horses in the middle of the stream, but yeah, if I'm second guessing your motions practice or I'm wondering why you aren't making a more aggressive stance on one thing or another, yeah, that's, that's grounds for, for at least no more claims. So that's, that's a bit of a, a bitter pill for the younger attorneys because, you know, I mean, you got to know everything you got to know, but for, let's just say the, the fourth, fifth, sixth year associate looking to develop business you got to go after something specific. And honestly, you know, uh, if I were to be in my shoes again at a younger age, I'd probably go after something that's a little more exciting. How many space attorneys do you know? I mean, back when I was in law school, I, 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 I just quietly learned everything there was to know about the moon treaty and space law and that sort of thing. And had I actually stuck with that, I'd be the guy. Like I turned out to be the guy in capital insurance because that was the way my, my life went. But 
I mean, SpaceX is a real thing now. Virgin, they're in, they're in the game and NASA has need for legal counsel. And looking back on it, it occurred to me, I was like, that was, that was, that was a mistake. I mean, I'm happy with where I'm at, but I would, I would, I would honest to God say that I had an interest in an area of the law. I got busy with school and then I, I, you know, took a bunch of tax classes because, you know, tax is safe, makes a lot of money. And before I knew it, I completely missed out on the beginnings of kind of the space industry boom. Those lawyers over there, nobody's negotiating their rates. So (laughs) when I look at the insurance world, not everyone needs to be a cannabis attorney or a Bitcoin attorney or a space law attorney, but having to focus to be able to say, okay, I am particularly good at workers' comp. I don't need to do everything else. Maybe I'll take the occasional GL case, but I just need to focus on that. Or even within GL, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be your, your roller skate rink guy. And that sounds a little silly until you remember that there are conferences like where they have these things called programs. And that's where you meet a lot of people like me. So I'm not going to be the volume-based referral of sources. I've got a good amount of gross and premium, but when you compare me to any admitted carrier, I'm not even a rounding error. But what that means is when you get a case from me, I'm not putting it through the audit software. You're talking to me about the bill and I'm, I'm going to pay market rate in exchange for treat me very, very special. You'll get a few cases from me every year, hopefully not too many. And I expect them to be with all the heat. You know, there's, there's no room for error there because I'm a very small guy. It's a program. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a program is essentially where an underwriter or some other insurance professional has come out and said, I've got this better mousetrap or better distribution network. And it's focusing on a niche in the market. And they have a program for almost everything. Underground mining, roller skating rinks, um, Bitcoin miner exposures. I just saw that the other day. They have a program for everything. So the biggest advice, I I really just want to get to the the younger crowd and even the younger partners, you know, the the non-equity partners, which is like a senior associate. (laughs) Don't be afraid to say no to everything else except for the stuff you're good at. And then find your way to the conferences and the people who develop programs because those are going to be a whole lot of people who are just looking for that one little thing. And, you know, the dirty little secret is law is pretty much the same all over the place. So if I've got one guy who's, again, the roller skating rink guy, and he's based out of, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm probably going to talk to him about my claims that I have in Georgia and Louisiana. Uh, I may not use him, but he may be my source of referrals. He may help me with establishing that panel. I may trust in his guidance because for whatever reason, I think that I need a specialist in roller skating rinks or offshore oil rinks or, or, or I mean, you get the point. So with that, I think the next thing uh, I think a, an insurance carrier really looks at is your, your basic metrics. And these things, I'm, I've been struggling with these for years. Uh, I mean, I struggled with metrics back when I was uh, general counsel and a captain manager, trying to figure out who was the best on that panel. I struggled in every other uh, manifestation of myself since then. And even today, right now, I have a, a limited panel. I've only got about 10 or 11 uh, attorneys. And I think of that, probably like six law firms I'm using in six different states. And I still don't know who's the best. And I'm actively trying to measure this right now. Right. So 
it would be so helpful if you could show me that you're the best. So here are the metrics that I care about. Number one, I would love to know your settlement to demand ratio. Show me how much that you're bringing that, that demand down by. And this is something where I've, I'm going to take a bit of a, uh, uh, a controversial position here and just tell you that it, I am sick and tired, and I think it's stupid for the defense attorneys to continue to tell me why this is an irrelevant metric. Because, and it's always the same excuse. Well, I have you know the crazy plaintiff's attorney asking for a million bucks on every single demand, so it's really a $5,000 claim, so that's a distorted metric. No, no, it's not, actually. That's just data. You're telling me you don't like the data because if I measured the data wrong, I would come up with a misleading statistic. Well, there, there's two things there. Number one, um, don't tell me how to do my job. And number two, I have access to data scientists. So you got to remember, almost all carriers these days, especially the new ones, but even the legacy carriers, they're investing millions, millions of dollars in data scientists. Now, they may not be measuring defense counsel the way I do. That's, that's Matthew's special brain. But what I'm telling you is that when you look at these things like the crazy plaintiff's attorneys who are looking for a million dollar demand, but you see these things across the country and you see enough of them from your firm and other firms, there's ways of taking averages and it's much more sophisticated than just, you know, waiting toward one state versus another. No, 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 no. There's, there's, there's machine learning techniques and, and um, very sophisticated software that can actually pull the leading indicators of a trend with significantly snaggletoothed data. And this is something that I've been learning myself recently is uh, in particular with actuarial science, if I don't have perfect loss data, how can I do loss projections? Likewise, if I don't have perfect settlement data from you, how do I do settlement projections? Well, the answer is there's a bunch of technical ways you get around that, but I can't get around that if you hide the ball and say, well, you know, it was a million bucks and I think it came down to like a quarter. And then I think it came down to like 2,500. That's, that's not right. Recording that as part of your your, uh, your your ongoing litigation is is super helpful, super helpful, selfishly for me to be able to predict the value of a claim, but also for me to be able to say, you know, when I measure you against the balance of the panel, here's where I see you coming in. Consequently, here's more work. Thank you for your hard service, and that raise that you wanted. I'm I'm happy to give you something in in line with inflation. That's that's how you get more money from us. It's how you get more work. It's how you get the, the, good, the good rates. It's how you get me not questioning your bill so often. It's all a virtuous cycle. Well, in reality, though, if you think about it, if say you have what some counsel would say, oh, plaintiff has an unreasonable demand. Say they start at, you know, a million dollars and you think the claim is worth 10. Well, that's I would be pushing that because, look, they were at a million dollars and I settled it for ten thousand dollars. Look at me. You know, look at the yeah. work I did here. I mean, that to me, that like, that's a, something you'd want to celebrate because it, it shows that you were like, yeah, I thought nothing of their million dollar demand. And in fact, I talked to them and I got them down to what I believe this case is worth. And that's what we're settling it for. So I think that's, uh, that's the low hanging fruit. I think a more sophisticated approach is to say, yeah, they, they you know, these guys always ask for a million dollars and you know, right. we always get it down, but you know, it was a broken hip with sepsis leading to death. And in um, Roanoke, Virginia, that's always going to be whatever, you know, it's going to be X if the plaintiff is between X and Y years of age, you know, 35-year-old partner in law firm, and that's the possible in this case, 86-year-old uh, diabetic grandpa, 
we're probably getting off for something significantly south of that. And then show me your data, show me the averages, show me, uh, even you don't even have to take an average, just literally give me the data. Here, you, you, just take, take the data. Here it is in a structured format. This is the best we can do. Enjoy it. And what that allows me to do is to be able to sit there and price these things out. I have found literally zero defense firms that have made a what I would consider to be a meaningful investment in cultivating their own data. And this is a this is an oversight because when I'm looking at the manifestation of losses across my states, when I'm trying to predict where the losses are going, when I'm trying to do any sort of high level analysis, it's all about the data. And and, and look, I mean, I'm I'm struggling with my claims department right now because I'm overwhelmed with all the work. It is, it is a lot. And I just, I just don't read the majority of what you guys put together. You should hear that from me. And I care about these claims very deeply. Like this is, this is my baby. I'm like, I'm getting an insurance company off the ground and I skip straight to the summaries and I scan a little bit through the, the, um, uh, the discussion about what happened to the witnesses. And honestly, I know what you're doing. You're putting your notes into the uh, the file, and I hope you're not charging me too much money for basically recording what happened. But that's that's not persuasive. That's not useful. It's not even really read. And I am not the only person in claims who struggled with this. If I don't see very clearly, this LPN is going to say something nasty, or this RN is going to say something fantastic, then I have to do a significant amount of analysis and thinking, and and I have to get back to the claim. And I have like 15 open claims, and uh. Don't even remember if this is a, a claim or just a medical record request. Good gravy. Do 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 that. Get that extra mile as to sit there and say, and here's why you should be paying attention to this. Summarize it for me. I mean, honest to God, if you could find a way of sending me the updates in the case without even giving me a narrative, I would like that more because I could plug and play into something else. Hey, this case, this case is a three out of 10 on the severity scale. Now that, that would be, that's impossible. I understand that's, it's too subjective as to what we do. But analysis that, that starts and ends with, we interviewed this witness, we took this deposition, it went good, it went bad, here's the key facts, moving on. And then maybe some, some supplementary stuff beneath that. That's how you work well with me. Because I, I, know, I know which attorneys are sending me a lot of work where the associate clearly was just entering a bunch of data, they billed me for it, and I am receiving zero value from that. Right. And I've already had a discussion with an attorney who I like. He's not going to get any fewer claims from me, but I, I called him up. I just called him up and said, look, this is not what I'm looking for. This is not the way that I, I do business. I don't need this. I need my claims uh, updates to be very straightforward. Email is fine. And that's me because I'm busy. I got all sorts of other stuff to do, but I'm not, I'm not uniquely busy. Every other person in a claims department is going to be very busy. And here's why. Claims doesn't make money. Underwriting makes money. Yeah. So if you are at the board of directors level of any insurance company, as I am, it is a pain. It is tough to invest in anything other than underwriting. I need to have probably a bookkeeper or someone in accounting. It'd be nice to have an adjuster. I also have significantly more exciting things that I need to be working on, like training our data and doing a few other things. So where do you think my money's going? And I'm the one telling this to you. So at every insurance carrier, those claims departments are going to be underfunded, understaffed, and the underwriters are going to get all the love. So know that and don't make their jobs harder. Do everything you can to make it easier. So show them your stats, make your case as to why you're an above average attorney, 
And then think of the things that the insurance carriers care about. Number one, so, so claims breaks down into three big cost buckets. You got indemnity, which is what you care about. Yeah, ULA, which is unallocated loss adjustment expense. It's basically overhead. And then ALA. So in other words, indemnity, ALA, and ULA. You can't touch ULA. ULA is going to run anywhere in a, in, a, in a captive, like the lowest cost possible insurance company. You could get that maybe down as low as 11 or 12%. That is, that is running light and you're not doing very much in claims. It is a very, um, it's just basically paperwork paying for an accounting department. You lay for a, well, let's just say expenses, expense in general, overhead labor um, in some reinsurance carriers that you've heard of can be well in excess of 35, sometimes over 40%. So where does everyone want to be? They want to be, they want to have an expense cost of somewhere between 25 and 33%. That's where people want to be. So then your ALA is on top of that. Your ALA is you plus experts plus anything else that's in the case. We want that around to be around 15%. And that's 15% of the cents on the dollar. So if I wrote $100 premium last year, I'm expecting to pay 15 bucks to the attorneys. And then indemnity should change based on the line of business. Um, in casualty, it's going to range from 30 to 50%. So that leaves pretty tight underwriting markets. And as soon as your indemnity goes up to 65 or 70%, then you're underwater. But what's interesting about this is that the underwriting, uh, that what we call that the combined ratio, the, the ratio of premium dollars to claims. So if, well, premium and uh, premium dollars to claims and related expenses. So if the combined ratio is below 100, then let's just say it's a 99% combined ratio, you'd be making 1% on every $100 of premium. In, in reverse, 101% combined ratio would be losing a dollar for every premium dollar written. So we don't necessarily freak out when the combined ratio goes negative because the losses manifest over a long period of time. And this is to your advantage, by the way. You need to understand what I'm looking at financially. So the ALA will not be 15% in policy year one. My claims in skilled nursing are manifest over a four-ish year period. Some say three, I think that's wrong. Some say five, I think that's a little aggressive. So let's just say four years. So of that 15%, what percentage of my costs are going to arise in first year, second year, third year, fourth year? Which is why, you know, if you take in $100 in year one, but you only expect 52% to go out in year one, then you end up with $48 in year two. You may be trending toward general unprofitability, but with year two premiums coming in, you now have a situation where you can kind of catch yourself up, maybe make some changes in underwriting, possibly make some changes in claims, and maybe you can turn that ship around. This, this is the secret sauce of insurance. It's why we're so profitable for so long. Why I think this is interesting for you is that if you notice that your settlements are going down or you're, you're, you're getting worse results against the plaintiffs, you're spending a lot more money. This is an opportunity to talk to the claims department and say, hey, what's trending here? What are you seeing in all of my claims? What are you seeing across this line of business? Is this something that um, we need to talk to underwriting about? Right there, yeah. that's your hook. So what I'm, hearing, what I'm hearing more from you is, you know, the way to stand out and get more files and get more cases is to think outside the box of just defending the claim, but more on the business side of insurance. So you have a greater understanding of how 
your, your cases that you have impact the bottom line. And once you have that understanding and you pay closer attention to it and you're cognizant of that, that, that stands you out for the bunch. That's what I'm hearing from you. I'm painting a picture of how you can get your defense firm written into the policy. It does happen. And those defense firms are the winners right. mm -hmm. because all claims associated with that policy are now going to that defense firm. Huge burden, huge burden upon you right. because now the profitability of the portfolio is not just directly dependent upon you as an attorney, it's directly upon you, managing partner. But this does occur and it occurs in the programs, it occurs in your high fluid. So all the high fluid areas aim for this all the time, financial services, DNO, they love getting themselves built into the policy. And that's, that's wonderful. Maybe you're in an endorsement, whatever, it's, it's where you wanna be relationship-wise. Now you have like the underwriting department cheering for you and you got claims, conceivably speaking, happy for you. That's your retirement gig. You make, make sure you love that, that client forever. I'm saying take that idea and use it for everything else. Mm -hmm. do, do that for, now it never worked for workers' comp because of the way it's, it's regulated, but you could do it for a program. And again, GL, we're going to use my favorite guys, the roller skating rink program. You can absolutely make a deal with the underwriters there and say, look, here's how I see this stuff manifesting over the book. Here's the data that I have. You know, we're specialists in this area. I see you're starting a new program. Why don't we talk? I'll help you manage this whole thing. I know how to handle these things. There's a couple of different things. And then you're not worried about the referrals so much from, from that carrier because you're basically helping them with their overall profitability at a more strategic level. That's where I want my defense attorneys to be thinking. I want them thinking strategically because honestly, I've got so many other things, so many other things in operations. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to recruit. It's very hard to find good talent right now. I'm sure, I'm sure you guys are struggling with that too. But that just means that any individual claim you're on is very important, but is a small part of a broader thing. So if you don't want to be forgotten, then you need to be bringing me the stuff that I think about at a, on a daily basis. Now, the, the average, like if you just want to get your, your, your name on a panel, it's really not that hard. Here's how you do it. You, you type in your favorite insurance carrier, and then you just pound all of the adjusters that you can on LinkedIn, find them on Twitter, find them on Facebook, and go make connections with them. Because most people are working remote these days. The conferences are not going to be a great place to go. And they're on these, these adjusters are going to be on Twitter. They're going to be on Instagram. Find them there. Those people will advocate for you either to come through, you know, through them, or maybe they'll have some carriers have a more formal process for getting on board, but they'll refer you in that direction. That'll get you on a panel, but good luck getting any claims. Right. You're not going to get claims, even if you're on the panel, if you're not constantly in someone's head. So the best way of doing that is to be at the highest levels working with people. The next best way down, let's assume that this is impossible. You, you, you know, for whatever reason, you're just not, never going to get written into a policy. Then I would recommend trying to develop an understanding of how the organization looks. So again, if I were just choosing my own organization, I would, you know, you, you would find me, uh, you'd see I'm the chief risk officer. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. If you're halfway smart, you find me on Twitter and then I'll talk to you. And then you may ask like, do you have an AVP? Do you have uh, other claims adjusters? And my, my, my answer is no, but with a larger, more established organization, the answer is probably yes. 
And if you come in through the back door like that, if you find someone on, on social media, you may be able to get yourself in a position where you're talking about this line of business, you know, we're pulling back from it. You know, you can get on our panel, but you're not going to get many referrals, but this one over here is growing. So if you want to present yourself to the panel, you know, you maybe you'll have a little bit more success over there. Do you include personalities of attorneys in your rubric? Because I, I feel like it's when I, when you apply to like undergrad college, they look at your SATs and they look at your grades and things like that. But then there's always that nebulous. Are you involved in extracurriculars? Do you interview well? How does your essay look? And from what I'm hearing, there's a lot of, you know, metrics and rubrics and numbers that you look at, but do you ever say, listen, I just don't like talking to this person. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, I, I developed a relationship with another counsel. I really like just as a person more or not. Rarely. I mean, I definitely have my favorites like anyone else does, but I can't really say that that's super persuasive for me. I would argue that the defense attorney who's good and fun is probably going to get more from me, but I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm way more concerned about, you know, if somebody's in my space and she's the managing partner, cool, great. That's, that's who I want. I, I, I may share nothing in common with you, but that's, that's exactly where I want to go. But I'm also, I'm also, again, I'm in a blessed position. I just need the heat. That's all I'm paying for. You know, I don't need a broad-based insurance carrier that offers me, you know, something in 50 states because I'm such a big carrier. I just need to have a solution everywhere. No, no, I'm, I'm a different guy. I, I am definitely looking for people who can come in, beat the hell out of opposing counsel, or just beat them off of me where we do, you know, have a problem. And I mean, I work in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. So we're, I'm probably never going to meet you. You know, if you're, if you're my boy or you're my girl from Missouri, <laughs> I like you. But realistically, I'm probably not going out to, to Kansas City anytime soon. So um, I think that's a good question because it reflects the cultural change in uh, the allocation of claims that I've seen since I started allocating claims. So when I started, when I was general counsel with a captain manager, I more or less sat down with the defense attorneys who we liked. They did the bad faith presentation. They told me how smart they were. And they were, they were very, very good. And that was it. You know, we'd meet them, you know, once a year or so. They'd take us out to dinner. It was fun. I, subsequent to COVID, I have met two or three attorneys who've worked for me. And in this current role, I got to be honest, I, I don't know how many of these attorneys I'm ever going to be. I mean, I'm hiring for a guy out in Washington State right now. I mean, unless I just happen to be in Seattle for fun, I, I don't really, I mean, he is a nice guy, but I'm probably, I'm probably never going to meet him. So these attorneys who I'm talking to, they know where I'm coming from. My guidelines are even different. My guidelines focus on statistics. They focus on strategy and claims. I'm not talking about save me, you know, 5% by, you know, doing some stupid stuff with, you know, deposition management. No, 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 no. That's, that's not where I'm at. I'm asking for um, someone who's a, 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 a true expert in what they're doing to be able to demonstrate to me that they're more worthy. So settlement to demand ratio is an area. Obviously, your billable rate is important, but not the most important thing. Um, I think other areas... Um, results in settlements overall, like what are your numbers and what are what factors are in those settlements? Who was the plaintiff's attorney? Who was the judge? What county were you in? What facts are relevant in that case? 
age, race, national origin, all the stuff you shouldn't talk about is obviously relevant for a jury. So we would need to know these things. Gather those statistics to the extent possible because I'm going to feed that directly, not only to my claims department, but my underwriting as well. You see how I just went right back to the strategy idea? Because if you're providing data like that to, to a big carrier or a small carrier, the right person is going to figure it out. But if I were in your shoes, let's just say, let's assume you have a relationship with admitted carrier XYZ. The adjuster who's handing you the slip and fall claim is never going to do anything with this data. You need to elevate yourself in that organization, get to the head of claims, and sit there and say, look, this is what we're doing. In a firm who's got a multiple state presence, showing how claims are manifesting across the states and, and giving some, some better insight, that's how you get the head of claims attention. That's how you can possibly get the the product head decision uh, attention. We can sit there and talk about the, the overall profitability of this line of business and whether or not th- that they are above or below industry averages because they don't know. You have data nobody else has. Because of the attorney-client privilege, you can see emails that are privileged and you see a lot of other cases that the insurance carriers will never be able to get. So anonymize that data and show the insurance carrier. Ideally speaking, show an insurance carrier that's on their ass. Show somebody who's not doing so well, hey, these are results I'm getting for other people. I'm wondering, I'm not a coverage attorney, but I'm wondering if maybe you're covering too many things or if we need to adjust your underwriting or if your deductions or deductibles need to be amended, something like that, where you can come in there as just a, hey, thought you should know sort of situation. That may get you an invite to go sit there in an HQ and talk about you know, what you see going on differently in other areas with other carriers. And I honestly believe, I think at any company I've ever, I've ever worked at, that would send you straight to the top of the list of this guy gets what we're doing. Yeah. And that goes back to the thinking outside of handling the actual claims and files, but more getting, tackling the business side and knowing exactly what you or a, a a big box insurance carrier, what they're looking for. And it's more than just a check the boxes. This is how we handle claim. We're a great attorney. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. You're like, you're all great attorneys. Like, you know, that's, that's not the bottom line here. You have to stand out above that. You expect everyone to be a great attorney. A hundred percent. I mean, a hundred, 105% agree. It is table stakes at this level that you're going to be good. So this, this conversation is not aimed at the first or second year associate. This is really aimed at younger partners who don't have that constant stream. Because I know a lot of partners who have so much work that if they slam the brakes, they wouldn't be able to stop the referrals. And that's because they've developed a nice reputation. But if you're still looking to get there, key number one is find your niche. Key number two is act like a business owner or at least act like the insurance carrier. So think of anything that you can measure Find a lot of that in your own firm and then structure that data and then start shopping that around. You have to have the confidence in your own results that, you know, somebody else is not doing a better job than you. But conceivably speaking, you should know. You know. I mean, generally speaking, you know, you're you're probably going to have some outlier cases. But truth is, most of these cases kind of resolve for what they're worth. So, if you can also show a meaningful history in trials where a lot of guys like to settle, maybe that differentiates you a little bit. But more than just a win or a loss, maybe some numbers in that. And you know what? I, I was just looking at, I was looking at panel counsel the other day 
we're having a coverage dispute with another carrier. And basically everyone's saying they want to use their attorney and I want to use mine. And I sent my attorney's resume over and she had a bunch of plaintiff's uh, victories on it. And um, they started grilling me on that. I said, yeah, those, those were plaintiff's victories, but did you notice that the numbers, the actual verdicts were pretty low? That's somebody who knows when to pull them, when to fold them. And even though may have been clear liability or is a plaintiff's verdict, a loss is not a loss. And I wanted you to hear that because I know a lot of people are very scared about trial and rightfully so. I mean, if you screw it up, that's bad. <laughs> but a loss is not a loss. And I think the adjusters and the sophisticated claims departments are looking further than just on a win or a loss ratio. So explaining that to people, showing that to, to, the, to the carriers, and then again, one order of magnitude further or one order of thinking further, here's how we see verdicts trending. That, that's where you can sit there and say like, hey, five years ago, you know, this was a quarter million dollar verdict, but a defense verdict maybe 30% of the time. Nowadays, it just isn't going to happen. And you know, the stats are what they are. Boom. That, that's me. And you know what? Don't do that in an email. I get, I get emails every week from defense attorneys who send me these updates. And some of the updates are actually pretty good, but I don't read them. You know, that, that's something where they need to be calling me. They need to be telling me these things over the phone. An alternative way of getting the message out there would be to own the social media space. Do you know how many YouTube attorneys there are who are talking about insurance defense the way I'm talking about it? Very few. I, I don't even, yeah. <laughs> Zero. Like what you're doing right now is brilliant. This is great. I, I, I fully endorse this. I think that Spotify, YouTube, um, a, a heavy social media presence is an excellent way of grabbing people like me. Because again, remember, like, you know, I'm in charge of things now. And a lot of other people my age are in charge of things now. Right. And we're very social media savvy. So I don't want to say if I'm a millennial or a Gen X. I mean, the truth is I'm south of 40, not by very much. <laughs> but if you're if you're in that camp, Facebook was your friend in college. Mm -hmm. And as a result, all the explosion of social media means that every younger professional you're dealing with is going to be on social media. I just saw a legal tech firm the other day, several, like six legal tech firms the other day, uh, all hiring for a uh, champion of social media strategy. They're looking for attorneys who are media savvy to get out there and help them to sell their products to people like me. Uh, and possibly also people like yourself. So the social media channel is valuable. And owning that space is, I mean, honestly, honestly, God, that's a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, once again, putting myself in, in, in the shoes of a recently promoted uh, non-equity partner trying to figure my thing out, a YouTube series talking about what you see going on in an area either a geographic area that you know, or a niche area that you know, or a niche area you want to get into, nobody's doing it. Yeah, it is. It, it's very true. I mean, the, I would say a challenge with it, because, you know, we have a, this podcast as a YouTube channel um, is getting the traffic there. But then even if you don't have the traffic, you at least have a place for your content to live. So you can supply it to people if they need to be, and then people could find it by accident. So there's a, you know, a, a two-way funnel for it. Um, but there is certainly a challenge with, you know, getting it out there so traffic can see it. Yes. Yes. Um, I think the, the, the length of time 
you know, if this is your thing, if you want to be a defense attorney, in particular, if you want to be an insurance defense attorney, it's going to take time before people really start to recognize who you are. But the advantage is when you own that space digitally, you're going to get referrals. Not You're not just going to get client, potential clients looking at your thing. You're going to have competitors studying you. And the good news there is that competitor may be in Baton Rouge. So they may just say, oh, you need someone up in... Up in Tennessee, okay, I, I got I got a law firm for you. Why, why, why don't you try these guys? They seem to know what they're doing. So that that expansion of your network and that selflessness of giving as much information as you can, basically charging nothing for what you know and only for what you have to research. Yeah. Taking that mentality into the digital space is going to create a digital network that's equally as valuable as your real life friend network. And that creates a nice virtuous cycle where you will get referrals from people who you've never met. Mm-hmm. who just know that that law firm seems really smart. Yeah. Um, and one thing I wanted to walk back to, though, is when you were just talking about trial experience, because I think this is something, especially I think younger attorneys definitely struggle with, because not as many cases go to trial. And to get that trial experience at, at, a, at a earlier stage is very difficult, I think. I mean, I I was fortunate enough to be under a partner. I went to a trial a bunch of times, but that doesn't happen all the time, especially now with COVID that the the trials just have not been happening at the same frequency they were happening before. So, you know, as someone in your, your shoes, like what advice do you give to a, you know, either a, a, I would say a few year out associate or, you know, non-equity partner who might not have that experience. I mean, how do they stand out for the bunch when you just simply don't have that, that trial stuff to put on your resume? This is the job of the partner. So the partner needs to be holding the adjusters accountable and you need to be taking as many claims as is reasonable to trial and they need to be settling them above your head. This was the greatest advice I ever got from the from an attorney whom I worked under years ago, he said the adjusters need to be settling the cases and the the, the partner needs to advise. Obviously, if there's clear liability and it's pulsing limits case, get out, get out, get out, get out. That's that's common sense. And if if people figure out your milk and files, they're gone. But again, we're only talking to credible candidates right now. So you have to make your case as frequently as is possible. And Anytime that you can win a case, you need to have, once again, the most granular data possible so that the chief claims officer or the head of claims, whatever it is, has priced in the risk. And then once again, go back in time. Like absolutely nobody wants to pay policy limits on a claim. Nobody. Got it. But what was I, what was I saying at this point, I guess, 25 or 30 minutes ago about the manifestation of costs over time? The premium associated with that claim may have been collected two and a half years ago. They've collected more premiums since then. Yeah. Take some of the burden off of yourself. Okay. Now, if you don't understand the mechanics of how money moves in an insurance company, yeah, a million dollar claim, you, you may have a heart attack. And that and that's a that is a bad day. And and honestly, I hope, I hope that's a situation where you get sucked in the trial you're trying to get out of. But if you go into a verdict and we price this thing out, and I think on a good day it's a defense verdict, a bad day it's 150 grand, it comes in at 100 grand. I spent 50 grand on it probably more these days. I'm, I'm okay with that. Not thrilled. I'd like to see a defense verdict or maybe do some, you know, down to like 2,500, some nuisance verdict uh, settlement uh, or some nuisance verdict, but we've priced that in. We priced it in years ago. So it's, it's called uh, reserving. So the real 
thing you need to be doing, like let's talk about the man- managing expectations. What specifically do you manage? The reserves. So when you tell me this is a $150,000 claim, plus it's going to cost you another hundred grand to go to trial, I'm not scared. I'm just reserving that. Now, I would prefer to reserve less because that allows me to pull down from my reserves and declare more underwriting profit. But the truth of the matter is, if you tell me it's a you know, total incurred of a quarter million dollars, that is what it is. So make sure that you accurately reserve these things on your end so that we don't have to stair step up or down. That keeps the actuaries happy, and then more, more over than that, that allows me to go back to my my the underwriting side and play distribution games. Hey, it looks like you know we've got a whole lot of reserves over here in um, West Virginia. Turns out we radically misunderstood that. Let's 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 pull that down a little bit. Let's you know try to focus a little bit more in Texas, where you know the liability seems to be a little bit a little bit lighter. That's helpful. And, you know, there's still going to be those claims that coming through in that area that you may be living in, West Virginia. Um, but you're going to be getting more of them because you're the one who's telling them from the very beginning what this claim is actually worth. And then if you go through the trial and miraculously do get a verdict of significantly under that total incurred, well, that's nothing but gravy to the insurance carrier. I had a question. I hate to go back to something, but I had a question that was stuck in my head that I didn't get to ask at the time. You were mentioning uh, looking for folks with experience in the types of claims that you handle or types of claims that you have with your company. How do you cut through, for lack of a better term, the BS that attorneys tend to do when you look at their bio and they list, I'm, I'm an expert in the following and it's 17 things. And then you say, well, listen, what, when did you do professional liability? Well, I had a case in 2002. We settled it in two months, but I was on that case. You'll see my name on pleadings. How do you cut through the, the, how do you vet them? I should say is a little more um, nice, nicer way to say it, but how do you vet them? Do you say, listen, show me your results in that particular area. Send me motions that you've had granted. Uh, do you ask other attorneys that they've worked with? How do you, how do you do that? Okay. So I'm going to answer that in two different ways, small and big. I am small. I am running a little program. So I am, I am in the fortunate position where I call people who I know and trust and I get referrals. So I'm 100% on a referral-based uh, platform, although I recently did have to reach into the state, the great state of Washington, and I was faced with this exact problem because I don't, my, my referral network is pretty weak in the Pacific Northwest. So um, I just overlooked every single person who listed more than just a couple of things. Now, I wouldn't necessarily do that if I were a big carrier. You know, if I were writing 100 million in gross written premium, and I've got five or six lines of business, I, um, and, and you claim you're just like, hey, I'm just a really good trial attorney. I'm cool with that. I used to work under that kind of guy, by the way. He was a, he was, he was a true generalist. And his, his real strategy was, you, you may know a lot more than me about X, Y, and Z, but I'm the best trial lawyer you're ever going to meet. And that's great. That works well for him because his target market is going after larger carriers that have a lot of claims where they just need a really rough guy in there mixing it up. I am not that guy. I'm not that guy. So I'm a specialist. I'm looking for specialists. So when I see, yeah, okay. So me specifically, I'm, I'm in skilled nursing. I want to see you talking about assisted living, CCRCs, continuity care, maybe medical malpractice. Maybe you did some transactional work, like closing a deal for a skilled nurse facility. I'd not be thrilled about that, but at least it's all going in one direction. You're showing me that this is, this is my why I show up to be a part of the healthcare industry. Cool. Love it. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that's going to exclude you from somebody's panel. I think you need to be 
clear-eyed with what the insurance carrier is going for. HIPAA, um, for example, what do they do? They do homeowners insurance. So uh, defense counsel is probably not the best, best example, but let's pretend for the sake of argument, you are somehow or another related to them. I mean, coming in there and talking about your experience in workers' comp and GL, not relevant. However, Allstate offers homeowners and auto and workers' comp. They make it look at you as a package deal. So I think the, 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 the answer to your question is it depends, and it really just depends on where the carrier is in the market. And also I think it just, it also, you have to know your audience too. You know, if like you have to be mindful if you're, you're trying to pitch, say, Hippo and you haven't done your research as to, you know, where, where they stand and you're pitching a comp to Hippo, like you, you look like an idiot. You, know, you have to know who you're, who yeah. you're talking to. <laughs> well, I would say that if you're if you're in, a, in the lucky position to be pitching a specific carrier, then, you know, rule number one, figure out if they're public. And if they are, read those financials, see everything that they're doing, see what their real problems are. But a lot of carriers are not public. So, and, and like me, for example, you'd have a very difficult time figuring out what we do because I'm a captain. So I'm, I'm way behind the lines. Most people don't even know I exist. So that would be a little bit more difficult. Um, so I would, I would suggest that, you know, for general marketing purposes, um, if they're a public company coming in there, knowing what all their problems are, puts you way ahead of the game. But at the same time, um, very, being very confident in your niche will probably overcome whatever, whatever homework that you're missing out on for the, the private, smaller companies. You know, one thing that comes to mind, though, as a captive, you know, a lot of your companies on, underneath your umbrella of a captive may, or I don't know if this is a situation for you, but do they, if they have choice of counsel, you know, have you ever been in the situation that they have choice of counsel and you just don't? like their counsel or, and it's just not someone you would choose, but you have to kind of go along with it. Like, how do you deal with that scenario? So that comes down to the type of policy you have. Is it duty to pay mm-hmm. or, um, or duty to reimburse? I think it's duty to reimburse. So um, the language of the policy is controlling here. If we are on a duty to pay policy, then I believe the rule is coverage attorneys, Please don't get angry me if I confuse this. But I believe under a duty to pay policy, we follow whatever the client's decision is. And frequently they, uh, they will choose whoever they know. Um, sometimes they're fantastic and expensive. Sometimes they're crap and expensive. What is for sure is that if it's under a duty to pay policy, that attorney is not on panel and is going to charge full freight and then some, put the training wheels on the associate, get the other associate's cousin on there that they haven't used on that many cases, <laughs> just milk the file. I see it happen. It, it's, it's, it's why I don't write those kinds of policies. Our policies, I am in charge. Mm-hmm. I think there is a strategic reason why you may want to have uh, choice of counsel endorsements on policies if you're in competition in the marketplace, and it's a very tight area, that may be an area where, that may be the deciding factor between getting a, a large account to go with you versus someone else. Again, underwriters have to play a lot of games and the brokers are a pain in the butt too. So it's a, yeah. it's a whole jungle. We're coming from the pure claims department side. No, hell no, no. It's my, it's my panel, it's my attorneys. I'm the guy who's in charge. And what's, what's 
particularly good about me being in captive land, there's no tripartite relationship. Mm -hmm. So you guys have the ethical quandary of, well, you know, the insured is the client, but the carrier is paying the bills. So you have to navigate this ethically. Oh my God, there's 50 different rules in 50 different states. Captive is different. I'm the client too. (laughs) So it's real easy. I call the shots. Uh, so one thing I wanted to touch on though, okay, say, say you've, you've pitched to, to get on panel, you get on panel, maybe with, with you or a big, a big box insurance company, you, you get some, you get the file, you get a bunch of files and then you fuck, fuck it up. All right. And you know, how do you turn that relationship or one is that relationship soured? And if so, is there an opportunity to turn it around or, or not, or, or it probably depends. Yeah, I think I think it it absolutely depends. Um, I mean, if you're if you're a, just a standard screw, let, let me choose one that may or may not have ever happened to me, where you're suddenly wondering, did someone file that answer on time? And then you're suddenly in default. Um, I don't look at that as that big of a deal. Depending on, I mean, if it's federal court, ugh, uh, not the best. That's rough. <laughs> but if you're talking, you're in Chatham County, Georgia. And it's the good old boys club down there anyway. And that just going to open up that default no matter what. I mean, I mean, how did it happen? Were you overwhelmed? Did you have an associate quit? Did you, uh, are you going through a divorce? Tell me what's going on. I mean, I want like that kind of like, again, not filing the answer is right toward the top of the list of we need to have a chit chat, but I'm not going to fire you over that. Um, especially if it's, you know, if it's a one-off. But mismanagement of files, not knowing what's going on in the case, generally just being slipshod, which would tend to correlate with things like missing answers. Yeah, that, that, that'll sour me on you real fast. Yeah. And is there, coming, is there anything to come back from that? Or once you know, you've completely soured, are you just a sour apple and you just need to you know, cut your losses and move on? I think I probably would just cut my losses. Um, so again, we're going under the assumption that, you know, this is a, a forgivable error, something as binary as did you file the motion or not? And again, if there's no prejudice to the case, I'm probably not even going to worry about it. I would ask that, you know, in the motion, like, again, going back to default, don't charge me for the hearing where you have to open up the default or any of the motions related right. to that and all will be forgiven. But if you miss uh, a filing and now we're prejudiced and we can't do this thing that we thought was critical to make sure that we reduce the value of this claim. Yeah, man, I'm going to be real angry about that. And I may, I, we may, you may need to put your, your, you know, carrier on notice. I mean, I I don't want to be mean, but at the same time, like I have a multi-state practice. I don't even pretend to know all the procedural rules in all the States that we're in that's your job. Mm-hmm. And I expect to be working with people who are passionate about their job, who know these things, who stay on top of it. And um, prejudicing a case and forcing me to come out of pocket a material, materially more. Yeah, I, I, I would have a tough time overlooking that. And I know that's probably going to happen from time to time. So I don't want to I don't want to scare anyone and say for sure you're off the panel. It, it would all be on a case by case basis. But I mean, um, there's, it's hard for me to imagine that someone who's engaging in fraud 
is being honest and everything else. So, you know, I saw a, a, a defense firm at one point in my career was um, engaging in fraud. They had to go. It wasn't even on my case. I just knew for sure this firm was credibly accused in federal court of hiding evidence. So gone. Like, look, I, I can't be dealing with people who play those kinds of games in discovery. And they, they had every excuse in the world. I wasn't at fault, blah, 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 blah. I mean, no. So that was one where they had to go. Um, and then other firms that just chronically are not doing a great job, making life difficult for the adjuster, the, 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 again, it's the death by a thousand cuts thing. Yeah. They eventually yeah. have to go. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that's, that's in a way a kiss of death. Like if you, our job is to, you have to feel confident in what we're, we're doing and make your life easier. Cause we're doing something that like, we're taking something off of your plate, so to speak. So for fucking it up <laughs> or, or not being clear about what we're, we're doing or late, chronically late on reporting or this, this, that, or the other thing, you know, of course you're going to lose confidence in, in that attorney. And then why, why are you going to pay them? Yeah, exactly. And you have your choice of people lining up, I'm sure to, to, to take their place, right? <laughs> There's no dearth of attorneys looking for work. Yeah. That's, that's part of the problem. Um, there, there are a lot of insurance defense attorneys out there. Um, that's why I, I, again, again, maybe it's, maybe it's just my, my bias because I know something about the way insurance works mechanically. I would be making a beeline for the programs because that's where you're going to find more of your specialists and the people who you can actually talk to. And they're, they're smaller, so they're probably going to want to work with a firm that is smaller for various reasons. I think, I think small firms are typically hungrier and do great work. The um, competition that you've got from the large multi-state law firms is legit. And the truth of the matter is some of those firms are excellent. I mean, not every firm has 100% on anything. Um, but, you know, I mean, some of these, some of these large multi-state plaintiff's firms can actually win the occasional $15, $20 million case. So, uh, that, I mean, it's, it's hyper-competitive. So... The tactics that I'm talking about to try to get on panel, to try to get claims referrals, to try to get, get yourself higher level in their minds, as well as, um, you know, increase your bottom line, is all designed to try to get around the biggest weakness that I see in the defense bar, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the insurance companies do, mm -hmm. okay? The fear of going to trial. What did I say? That money's already baked into the cake. Yeah. Conceivably speaking, if you lose that trial, that, that's, that's not why you get kicked off panel. All right. And conversely, winning that trial doesn't necessarily mean you get 100 more cases. <laughs> Trials are very, very important. Trials are very, very important. But it's not the only thing that's important. Likewise, the billable rate, not the most important thing. Right. If you can demonstrate to me that you're more efficient and that, you know, hey, look, my sales to demand ratio is this. The average settlement includes people from these following counties. And by the way, the ultimate cost associated with me is going to be this. If you have the confidence in saying that, you know, I'm at a little bit more than a market rate, but here's what you're getting in return. That may be persuasive enough to allow someone to say okay with your healthy rate. And truth is, in insurance defense, the carriers will push you down to the bottom. That there's there's just a natural tendency there. They will push those rates down as far as they can. And you guys have the obvious problem of associates who can apparently get hundred thousand dollars signing bonuses with the AMR 100. So you've got that problem kind of going in the opposite direction. And um, 
here's a way I would, I would actually negotiate this. So if you're dealing with a particularly obstinate carrier, um, figure out if you can what the, uh, what the loss ratio and combined ratio is on that line of business and at the carrier level itself. Because one of the, one of the counter arguments to uh, a defense counsel asking for more money is, you know, hey, manage your own costs on your own dime. That's not my problem. But if you can respond and say, hey, you had a 95% combined ratio, you're making profits, you're paying your people more. Um, and we were a part of that, treat us like a business partner, that throws some of the hubris back in their face. Yeah. Um, well, what, one theme I think I take out of it anytime I, I sit down and talk to you is data, 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 data. And that that is really what council needs to, set, to be able to set themselves apart is be mindful of your data and promote your data. And that can help stand out from the, the pack. Yeah. So the, the business model I just don't have time to focus on is, okay, so, you know, if I'm starting my new insurance defense firm, I'm also starting a TPA in hand in hand with that. So the reason there is you can offer services is basically a vertically integrated claims cycle for the defense, or I'm sorry, for the claims department. So start working the cases the right way with adjusters, aka paralegals. And then when it came, when the claim manifests into a suit, the partner starts doing some more work, you bring in an associate. And now essentially you're handing your associate a well-worked case. This, if you pull the data from the very beginning on all the claims, you're gonna have a full stack of knowledge starting from basically the notice of incident all the way through settlement. So remember that data source you have, no one else does. We saw the communications with, with plaintiff's counsel, all the motions, all of the, um, the communications with the insured, all of the evidence put that into a database, have quality data engineers start to pull that out, then Moneyball claims, starting with the TPA. Then really what you're doing is you're using the TPA as basically like a shopping arm to try to go get more carriers to hand you work. And your, your, your pitch is very, very simple. You give it to TPA XYZ, they're gonna do a dual fashion way, they're gonna guess on these claims and your guess is as good as mine. We can quantify these claims down to the county, down to the judge. We know exactly what they're worth based off of the manifestation of claims over time. I didn't make this idea up, by the way. So if you look at a company called Gradient AI, they can already kind of sort of do this on workers' comp claims. So all I'm suggesting is take the same concept and expand it out to defense firms. Use your incredible wealth of data that nobody else can touch, the privileged data, and then start to look at it. I mean, my God, especially, I mean, if you can find a couple of partners across the country, defense firm in the Southeast, Northwest, Southwest, you can create a confederated strategy where you review each other's data. You look at the claims as they're coming in on the TPA side of things. You start to pull uh, inferences from that. Then all of a sudden, you've got yourself a nice little market edge and nobody else has that. Like yeah. literally not one, per, not one defense firm has put this together. It's, yeah. fun, it's funny when you mentioned the word Moneyball, because when you were talking about a half hour ago, I thought this is like Moneyball because yeah. it cuts through, you know, the book and the, and the movie because Bill James cut through all that in baseball. It cuts, it cuts out the everything except for the numbers that really matter. And have people actually said to you, this is like Moneyball, Miz, if you heard that, because that's exactly what I yeah. thought. Well, I mean, so the quote from the movie is, what do you buy when you buy a, base, when you, when you buy a baseball player? You're buying runs. Likewise, right. what do I buy when I buy a defense attorney? I'm buying wins. The problem that I have in the claims department is defining what a win is. 
So the, the goal of, of taking all this data and structuring it is to be able to, to determine whether or not we settled or, or, or resolved a claim above or below the market average. I just sometimes, when I, every time I talk to you though, I'm always like, your mind is so at work all the time. Do you always feel like your gears are always moving? I work on a lot of things. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a nice answer. What a good <laughs> diplomatic answer. <laughs> Well, I want to be respectful of your time because I've kept you for, for an hour now. And I, I know you, ha you have a lot of things to work work on and as you're, you're very busy. So I don't want to take any more of your time. But, you know, Matthew, I can't say it enough. I always appreciate when, when you come on and, and join me and join us on the defense of arrest because I, I love your candidness and how, how, you know, how much you share, share with us and all our listeners about you know, what you and people like you and, and your position are, are looking, looking for. for. And I think you just have a, you also have like, a fresh look at things, which I appreciate your candidness about. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time and I look forward to seeing you soon. Have a good Thank one. you so thanks, much. Thanks, Have Matthew. A good one.